This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Coppolas, the Barrymores, the Fondas. These family names are synonymous with the movie industry. Their influence spans multiple generations, and they're universally recognized as being instrumental in shaping countless facets of American cinema. This next guest and his family have had an equally profound impact on the landscape of surf culture. They helped pioneer the surfboard traction pad, toe-in surfing, aerial maneuvers, and big wave riding. His family's been inextricably linked with the sport of surfing since the development of the fiberglass board. But despite all of this, it's his pursuits in filmmaking, painting, and sculpture that might actually be his most compelling hallmark. Surf culture is replete with characters that are revered from within the culture, but largely unknown to anyone outside of the sport. But he's been able to successfully infiltrate the exclusive orbit of the fine art world as well. His artwork's been shown in prestigious galleries all over the globe, and he's a close friend and collaborator with the wildly successful artist Julian Schnabel. Today's surf scene looks markedly different than the era when he first made a name for himself. Lineups are crowded, traffic is oppressive, and the influx of corporate sponsorship dollars have siphoned away much of the rebellious spirit of the sport. So how does he avoid being cynical, stay inspired, and sidestep the natural tendency to live in the past and embrace all things nostalgic? We'll find out as we sit down for a conversation with this prolific maestro and architect of modern surf culture. Today, artist, surfer, grandfather, and the man who helped build the most iconic residence on the entire North Shore, Mr. Herbie Fletcher. 
Herbie Fletcher, thanks for sitting down, man. How are you doing these days? I'm doing pretty good, thank you. We're down here at uh, Fletcher Films in San Clemente. Um, well, hey, I want to just jump right in it. I, I got a copy of Fletcher, A Lifetime in Surf recently, and I just want to say congratulations. It's just such a beautiful book. Everybody should go out and check it out. It's available in bookstores. It's a Rizzoli imprint. And it's really, it's like a, it's a stunning collection. For those of you who don't know what it is, it's like a stunning collection of artifacts and photos and stories that really kind of chronicle the contribution that you and your family and Dibby's family, the Hoffmans, like gave to the, to the sport of surfing and to the culture of surfing. And it's such a beautifully done book. I'm curious, the first time you got your copy of it, the first time you were able to have like a private moment and sit down and physically touch it and really like dig in and have a moment with it, what were your first impressions? What are you most proud of about that book? I'm proud of my wife that she put it together and got it out there. But like you said, it does start with her father, who uh, won the first Makaha Surf Championships tandem in 1950 or 51 right there. So it's actually 70 years. And his one daughter, uh, Joyce Hoffman, was a four-year world champion from 64 to 68. And then the shortboard revolution was on and everything was changing and... uh, I was on the forefront of it. Luckily, I got trained by the best surfers in the world, starting with uh, Phil Edwards, who was the best surfer, in my opinion. And he took me, and I was like his protege, and I'd go surfing with him, but he taught me how to shape surfboards, which was so important. And he taught me how to use the tools, which is unbelievable and so you know that was uh, i really got into surfing everything was about surfing i mean uh making surfboards going to the beach going on photo shoots uh working with people in cinema and and it, it shows all that and then we had well of course i did astrodeck and all those designs and but then having kids uh was a whole nother thing and i wanted to give them that You know, in surfing, you know, being a good surfer, but also um, making surfboards and know what they do, you know, what the rocker is, what the rails do, and in different types of waves, you know, from small little waves to big waves and, and have fun. The whole thing was about having fun, but, and then it just turns into a science. Well, I'm going to back up for one second. So you mentioned you were Phil Edwards' protege? How did that relationship come about? Why why you? How did you get that role? Well, it's pretty interesting because um, I was just a surfer going surfing, having a great time when I was a kid, you know, 10, 12. And I grew up in Huntington Beach, and that's where all the best surfers came for the U.S. Open, the Coke contest back in the late 50s and early 60s. And everybody would congregate, all the surfers from all over the world, you know, uh, very few Australians, but uh, uh, the Hawaiians would come over and build, uh, you know, huts on the beach and we'd just hang out. And then uh, the great California surfers would all show up from Dewey Weber, Mickey Dora, Phil Edwards, Mike Doyle, Skip Fry, Mike, all these great surfers with style. And those were the older guys. But then there was the younger guys like me and David and Weaver, 
right? And we got really interesting in all the what the boards did. There was really a revolution in it, just like all the way from Redwood to Balsa Wood. This was a new era. They started putting rails on the whip turn Phil Edwards developed, and I wanted to be able to do a whip turn like he did and a cut back and be able to throw it around and go fast on the nose and you know, just wherever. And I've had different problems during the time with Phil, you know, and this is like the 60s. I'm going, hey, Phil, you know, every time I get on the nose, I start spinning out. I'm like side slipping down the face of the wave. What the hell? I need to uh, put a different fin on. And the fin that he did was a pine fin and it was a little thicker and it was a reverse fin. And what he told me, he goes, hey, the fin's made so when you get on the nose, you can hang 10 and side slip. And I went, nobody does that. That's like really controlled, right? So anyway, I remembered that and I started doing it and we started experimenting with smaller fins on shorter boards and but the real big thing was the minigun coming into that in the late 60s, 67, 68. Gary Chapman was pushing the whole envelope on the minigun with Brewer. And Gary and I were best friends. And we lived in the same house. And we uh, we moved into the same house at back door in 1967 and off the wall. And we saw these perfect rights coming down the beach. And that was it, man. We started surfing these perfect rights and making mini guns and no nose boards so we could get down the face and pull in the tube, which, you know, guys did at pipeline going left, but the rights much heavier and it was so perfect. And when pipeline six foot and mushy back doors, eight foot and hollow. As you know, you've been there and seen it and hung out. And Mostly with, from the with, beach, I will admit, in full disclosure, yeah. but yes. Well, it's great. I love sitting on the beach taking pictures and stuff. And Ruka was really cool and had that house there and let us all hang out, and, you know. Well, we'll get back to the, the history and, and the design of Surfboard. But, you know, getting back to the book for a second, I think seeing a visual biography of your life essentially like in that book that just came out i would imagine it evokes some degree of self-reflection did this book bring up any regrets when you took a look at it not really i've really enjoyed everything i've done you know i gave up my life to go surfing and dibby ran away with me when she was like 16 and 68 to pipeline and then to maui and so she experienced all this you know, and with her dad, you know, she started experiencing before I did in Hawaii because her sister used to win the Makaha contest. But um, and it's sort of it's a timeline through our life. And no, I have no regrets unless I uh, could do it more. <laughs> I just <laughs> want more. You that's, know? A, that's, that's a great regret to have. Um, do you think anybody else could have put together this book or did it really take Divi and, and somebody from the inside, not just to be able to compile the artifacts, but to just really get the, the tone and, and the heart of this, of this book, correct? Well, Dibby has been around since before anybody with her dad. Her dad was like the godfather of the surf industry. He started it, but, you know, with Aloha shirt, he brought it all back. And, and he was a beach lover, so she went to the beach since she was a little kid. She's been traveling through the jungle at Trestles and through Hawaii and everything. And all of her dad, Walter Hoffman's friends, all everybody surfed. I mean, it was no different. He grew up with, you know, he taught Hobie how to make surfboards. He's taught so many people, you know, how to surf and do things that, 
she knows the history. She was there through all of it and knew everybody. And she still does. I mean, she communicates with all the kids. I mean, she, she she's worked with John John, you know, since she, he's been about eight or so. And I was his first sponsor, you know, with that with the Astro Deck and all that technology and design. And that all stems from being able to do this. Most girls would not hang out on the beach like that and, 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 and see surfing like that. But with the kids and everything, she was taking the kids to the beach all the time while I went and made Astro Deck and, and worked. You know, but she'd go to the beach, I'd show up at lunchtime and we'd all have a good time. And then I'd go back to work and they always had the equipment. Did that love of the lifestyle of the beach, I mean, is that a direct product of, of growing up with her sister and her father? I mean, is it, do you think? And, and going everywhere. Yeah. 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 That was, that was, how could she even want to hang out with other people after she hung out with all those crazy nuts, you know, her dad's friends and all my friends, you know? Yeah. What was your first relationship with, with her father like? Was that, did you have to win him over or was it something that he, he kind of respected and, and, and trusted you from the beginning? Well, I knew all of his friends before I knew Walter. Like the, when I met Walter, Phil Edwards was, and uh, Terry Martin was over at his house. That was the first time. So I, I had a lot of, I was, had everything in common. But they really wanted her to marry a lawyer or a doctor or something like that. Not, not I, a, just, I mean, there's, it's one thing to, to know his friends. It's another thing to yeah. date his daughter. And so know. I was just a surf bum. But you know what? He was really, uh, he was really mellow. He, you know, like I said, Dibby ran away with me. And then he came looking for us. And I'm over at Mike Differenderfer's house going, hey, Diff, we're going to use the beach in front of your house. And he goes, Herbie, Walter was just here looking for you guys. And this is that off the wall. In, in Hawaii, right? And that was sort of funny. We went to Maui right then. <laughs> but he he was never, he was always supportive. He was always supportive. Uh, was there a reconciliation at some point? Or was it just like he realized your intentions and he realized the good dude that you were and he finally was like, all right, I'm going to let this one go. I mean, how did, what was, what's the tail end of that story? The tail end is we're good friends, you know, and he was okay with it all. He knew I was a good guy and that, you know, we had kids young and, and we took care of them and I made surfboards and Astro Deck and went to work. You know, that was a big deal. He went to work, but I didn't want to go to work with him because all we'd do is argue. <laughs> and um, we had, we'd make surfboards together too and argue. He was older, you know, and, and the kids teach you everything like that. You know, there's always new surfing going on. So I put out a book this year as well. I don't know if you got a chance to check this out, but um, it's called... HI1K, 10 years, 1,000 moments on Hawaii's North Shore. And this is kind of, it's basically my tribute to all of the amazing people that I've gotten to shoot on the North Shore. I spent 10 seasons over there in December just chronicling um, candid moments at, at, the, at the houses and um, taking portraits and writing captions. And you're featured pretty prominently in this book. Your whole family is. Like, I know there's some great photos of you. And um, you and I sat down. We did a, a short interview at the Ruka House. Um, there's a shot of Grayson at the skate park with one of my favorite captions in the whole book, but I want to read to you a caption that's next to a picture of Christian and, and get your opinion on this. So it says, it's a picture of Christian it says, watch any basketball game from the 1960s. And you'll see a bunch of gangly guys in tight shorts playing molasses, slow offense and throwing lackluster set shots. Fast forward to today. And the game is completely different. Played at breakneck speed, replete with swarming defense, fast breaks and above the rim pageantry. In competitive surfing, a similar stylistic sea change occurred in the late 1980s. 
you can trace a clear path back to Christian Fletcher and a handful of others who were instrumental in the cultivation of modern aerial surfing. Many of today's Groms probably find it hard to imagine a time when the judges wouldn't reward points for a well-executed air. This man paved the way. So I don't think there's a clear consensus amongst the surf community, but I'll ask you point blank. Did Christian Fletcher invent the air? He didn't do the first air. They did some like curb airs, like, you know, half foot, maybe a foot. Martin Potter and some guys up north, but they didn't really know what they were doing. Christian rode his skateboard on the water because he was a skater. I'm a skater, you know, and I take him to the skate park all the time. And I go, you know, we're sitting there watching pots. I go, and he's doing a little airs. And, and I go, this is the next step, Christian. That's when he was nine years old, right? By the time he was 12, he was flying over, over people's heads in contest when he's uh, in the Manahoonies, like 12, right? He got canceled at 12. Christian Fletcher got, they tried to kick him out of the NSSA and they didn't even know how to judge an aerial. I mean, he'd go up and do a big 360 on the outside with no leash and then do a big fat air on the inside and they'd give him a two. And I'd go, are you kidding me? He just did the heaviest maneuver I've ever seen. And you give him a two. Well, he could have done three extra turns to the beach if he would have been doing turns. I go, what does that have to do with it? Ruin your surfing? Contests are good and they're bad. I love them because I see all my friends and we get to go play and surf together. But the judges, you know, when you're being judged, it's... it's so you th- is, it, is it fair to say he was, he was ahead of his time? Maybe he wasn't the first person to do airs, but he was definitely ahead of his time. In terms oh, of- yeah. He knew what he was doing, all the different maneuvers. He named all the maneuvers, you know, like the stale fish and the judo. It was done in skateboarding first, but that's, that's where it came from. You know, and Nathan could do all those things, but he wanted he wanted to do hard turns like Tommy Carroll, and he does. <laughs> um, well, I'm, I'm not I'm not a terrific skateboarder, but I've been really fortunate to get to shoot some of the best skaters of all time, like through some of my clients and some through personal connections. Whether it's you know Tony Hawk or Christian Hasoy or Paul Rodriguez or Andrew Reynolds, um, but I have to say I think today probably my favorite skater on the planet is Grayson Fletcher. I mean, I just He's fantastic, so stylish. Um, but I'm wondering, how did he get to where he was? Like, is it is it raw talent? Is it DNA? Is it dedication? He doesn't strike me as somebody who's incredibly intense and incredibly competitive. He seems like someone who likes to have a good time, and sometimes that's in conflict with being the absolute best at something. Like, so how did he get to the level that he's at? Having fun. He loved it. He just loved going and going and going. We'd go to the skate park, like the block, when he was like, I don't know, nine or something. And he'd skate all day to 10 o'clock at night, you know, and and take no breaks. We might eat something, but, you know, he's right back on the ramps. But we'd go on skate safaris. This is him and me, right? And we'd surf at Trestles. And then that's when the skate park here in San Clemente got built. And we'd go to the skate park and then back surfing. And I'd just wear him out, you know? And but he was having such fun, you know, and he'd rest and, you know, skating with his dad and skating with uh, Danny Way and, you know, seeing Hosoy. And that was what was so great with Christian. Christian used to skate a lot. And Nathan with uh, Christian Hosoy and Christian Hosoy would teach them. He's such a good teacher. He can break it down all the moves. And he was he was generous with that information. 
really generous and wanted to help out. And they love surfing. Christian surfs, you know, Hosoi. Uh, you see him in Hawaii. He's a Ruka yeah. guy. We're all hanging out together, you know. You're shooting us and everybody, you know, portraits yeah. and, and is loving it. But Grayson has raw talent and he has the drive to skate and he's light and he stayed thin so he can fly. And he likes to go fast and he's stubborn a lot, you know, about doing different things. But yeah. he's his own guy, you know, and, and you got to do what you want to do and wh- where it takes you. And, and he has a great passion for surfing and skating. But for whatever he does, you know, if he's snowboarding, he loves going snowboarding. And do you think it's a coincidence? I mean, him and John John are such close friends. And if, if there's one thing that, that John people say about John John is it's just he just he loves to surf. The kid will just be in water at every chance that he gets. I mean, is there some parallels between Christian? I'm sorry, between Grayson uh, on a skateboard and John John on a surfboard? Well, when they were young, I think uh, John was about eight and uh, Grace and nine. They'd surf and skate all day together and push each other. And and then uh, John's brothers would, you know, also participate, which was really great, a family, yeah. you know. But uh, John had a ramp in the, his backyard at, um, at Iakai Beach Park at Pipeline. And wow. so they'd surf and then go skate the ramp and surf and go, you know, just hang out and be buddies. And then when John would come over here to California, they'd go surfing and skating and a lot of skating. So, yeah, John doesn't skate so much in, anymore. And he's really into, uh, you know, a whole, yeah. yeah, a whole different thing. And uh, he's doing his thing and Grayson's doing his thing and they're still friends and, you know, and family. The parallel between that the, the makes them favorites for so many people is the fact that I think it really does shine through that they're having fun. Like it, you could see it. There's certain surfers, whether it's like John John or Mason and certain skaters like Grayson, like it, they just, they're fun to watch because you can tell they're having fun. And I guess what I'm getting at is there's some surfers that are hyper competitive and hyper dedicated, and maybe they excel slightly more because of that, but they're not fun to watch. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't translate, you know? Well, um, John John's uh, really competitive. And really fun to watch. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I think he's the exception that proves the rule. I, w- I won't drop any names, but there's definitely some guys on tour that are beasts, but they're not people's favorite servers, you know? Um, yeah. I just, I, I think that there's something about a certain personality type that makes you want to be the best is not necessarily a, a trait that you want to, you know, spectate sometimes, you know? Well, you want to have fun. Like Nathan, he, he wanted to go surfing, skateboarding. But he got into motocross and really went big in motocross. And, you know, he still likes it, but he found out he was really a surfer when he went to uh, Tahiti to Chopes and, and caught some insane waves, yeah. you know. And so that was his thing. And, and then he got more adrenaline from riding big waves. And so now he has a family and kids and they're all doing the same thing. They're surfing and skating and they're going off. They're crazy. I'm curious about your relationship with, with, with Grayson growing up. So, I mean, I know I think it's no secret that, you know, Christian's had some personal problems over the years. And did that affect your relationship with Grayson? Was there a silver lining in that? Like, what was what was your role to Grayson as a grandfather growing up? Well, I got to see him a lot. And that was really cool. And he, he we'd, we'd go to the skate park at least five times a week and surfing in the summer a lot, but on the weekends a, a lot, you know, in the winter and everything. And he was doing airs at Trestle's at high tides with the backwash, you know, off the rocks. And he'd see it coming. And it was just like skating, a little ramp. He'd just hit it and fly. And I think he was about 
seven or eight then. But he really got into skateboarding, and, and that was his deal. But now he's surfing, and he, he likes uh, shore break waves, you know, close to the beach, but really hollow and, you know, like uh, the wedge and uh, log cabins and, you know, heavy beach park. And, and how, how is that relationship different than your relationship with Nathan's son? I mean, there's a little bit of time difference there. Like, is it... Uh, do you have a different relationship with, with, with Laser than you did with Grayson when he was younger? Um, I don't know. I mean, I get to see him a lot. Uh, uh, Laser lives in Hawaii, so he's always surfing every day or skateboarding. And we talk every night, and, and, and he's just having the greatest time surfing and uh, motorcycling. And, you know, they've been on lockdown, so he goes surfing every day. You know, you can go surfing, but you can't sit on the beach. Yeah. Have you have you noticed uh, there's some personality similarities between the cousins? Um, I mean, I know like Nathan and Christian are such they're they're brothers, but they're they're kind of different characters in a lot of ways. Like, did that DNA translate to their kids? Like, is there? Uh, well, I'll say in Nathan's case, it did because he has two sons. One's mellower, but really talented. Lasers mellow and Jetson's just a beast. He doesn't care. Like, you know, he'll be riding his bike or skateboarding and he'll crash or something and hurt himself. And you go, oh, well, let's let's clean you up, fix you up. And he's crying and he goes, no, no, I got to have my skateboard. And, you know, you see his face. It's all bloody from blood, you know, and tears, you know, the water. So <laughs> it looks pretty radical, but it's just a scrape. But he won't give up. You know, he just wants to go. You can't take his skateboard away. Yeah, determined. And he was only like four and a half. It's inbred in him at an early age. It's in the blood. No, yeah, he, he wants it. And he wants to be better than his older brother. Little, little brothers are different. I always wanted to be better than my older brother. You know, it's competitive. I was more competitive. Yeah. Um, well, switching gears for a second. So I, I had Kasia Meta on the show recently, and we talked a lot about the North Shore, and but also about Malibu and surf history and the propensity for, for each generation to really embrace nostalgia and to kind of really romanticize the proverbial back in the day, you know, and I know you were there for so many chapters in surf history and, you know, rather than prompt you to try and tell tales of how it used to be so much better before the crowds or before the traffic or blah, blah, blah. Like, I'd love to hear your input on, on some, maybe some of the negative or or darker things about how it used to be. And then also some positive changes in, in the surf community that you're grateful for. Can you speak to that? Yeah. Um, in the older days, let's say uh, in the 60s, it wasn't as crowded as much, but the boards weren't as good either. So Definitely the, the, the technology of the equipment is unequivocally gone exponentially. But in terms of, of the culture, like, I mean, it must have been, was it a boys club back then? An element? Well, of- if you were surfing, but there was always beach chicks. Like I said, I grew up on Huntington Beach and, that, you know, all the chicks would come to Huntington Beach and hang out and sunbathe and whatever. And they love the surfers, you know, so it, that's a different thing. If you lived in Hawaii during those times in the country, which nobody did, there was no girls. You know, it was the country. You know, everybody lived in Honolulu. You know, they'd come out to the country to surf Pipeline or Sunset over the weekend. And a lot of times it wasn't good during the weekends. But And then moving on as things progressed and technology and everything, it got more crowded. They got leashes. They served better. I got a longboard. <laughs> I equalized yeah. it. <laughs> but I grew up on a longboard, and I knew how to do that better, even though we created the shortboard. 
I mean, designed it, shaped it, wrote it, invented it, me and a couple other guys. You know, it was different for different areas. Like I was in Hawaii and California, and then there was Australians doing different things. But I mostly was in Hawaii, so the Californians were doing different things. And I'm talking back in the mid-60s, 67. That's when it really started happening. But right around uh, 63, Phil Edwards started putting rails on, which was a big deal because everybody had 50-50 rails like Jacobs, Dewey Weber, Greg Knoll, Bing, Hobie, Gordon Smith, all of them, right? They just had round rails, sort of. And Phil started putting real rails on, which was a big deal. So that was technology, and then they started lightening them up. That was a different generation. Then it moved to my generation, and we wanted to make the boards lighter, just like the generation before me came out of balsa wood and redwood. You know, they wanted to make it lighter and lighter, and Phil invented the whip turn. And and so it just keeps going on today, you know, different things. But from different areas, people come up with different things. And then they also come up with the same thing. It's And it's just a thing that happens in nature, I think, that some people in a whole different continent would be thinking the same thing at around the same time. And, and what about like on the culture front? Is there anything that you don't miss about that era? I mean, was there like, was there a, an element of kind of a seedy underbelly, whether it's like drugs or violence or non-inclusion? I mean, are any of those things? Well, I'm, the drugs are still involved. You know, it's, it's always been there from alcohol and into drugs and you know, they got all kinds of designer drugs now, and there's a lot of people having issues with them. Uh, the culture, yeah, the contests change a lot of things. And now that they've made it a yuppie type sport, it used to be a hardcore type sport, you know, but now it's like tennis or something, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's it's not like it used to be at all. I mean, I've noticed a change even in the you know relatively short amount of time, you know, say 10 years that when I was on the North Shore, just with within the tour, the changes in kids having, you know, going from like a little bit more of like the tail end of the Irons era, where it was just like party and Volcom and, and, and that era up into kids having managers and trainers and agents and like big money coming into the sport. That, it seemed like that kind of changed the culture a lot as well. It ruined it. It ruined it. Now it's like uh, a hedge fund company. Asterdeck's probably the only company that has sand left in it. It's a, it's a real company, you know, a surf company, you know. So, um, so I'm I really I know you mostly and your family mostly from my experience going over to the North Shore every winter. So, you know, getting to see you guys last fall in New York City at your opening at Gagosian Gallery on Madison Avenue in this white austere fine art world, it felt incongruent to me at first but that's really not the case like you've been pretty immersed into the orbit of the fine art world for for quite some time like what what's the connection that binds the surf and the art world together for you well i've always been an artist even when i was young you know painting with oils and acrylic and you know i've always had a a a passion for art from designing surfboards fill that passion a lot but then painting in them and glassing them and testing them out in the morning you know because i'd make a surfboard overnight and test it in the morning at back door i mean that's what i did and we'd paint them and paint them abstract and 
just all kinds of weird colors. And then um, doing articles in magazine, going by the magazine and, and working with photographers. I learned photography and how to graphic designs, you know, and uh, setting up ads. So it was really a lot of fun. And also, I, uh, I was friends with Julian Schnabel, a very famous artist. And he was really generous. And I was really, we went on a 25-year surf safari together, pretty much. And so, you know, the broken uh, boards, the rectangles is... Uh, like, I got inspiration from Julian with his broken plate paintings. But I lived at Pipeline. I had a three-story house, a Volcom house. And after a good swell, I'd look down from my third-story balcony, and I'd look at the ground, and there would just be broken boards everywhere. Like 25 of them or something, just all stacked up. There's always 25 or 30 boards broken on a good swell. And I'm just going... Damn, that looks good. So I got involved with it and started making these things. And Julian was really inspiring towards it. And we were going on surf safaris. And uh, he'd paint on these surf safaris. And I'd, uh, I'd be his assistant, right? And so he'd tell me what he's doing. And then we'd go to a museum or he was doing a movie and, you know, in uh, San Sebastian and then there'd be a museum and he'd have a big art show. In, or we'd be in Madrid and, and he'd explain all these old paintings from Caravaggio and people like that to uh, Picasso and Paris and, and all the new stuff. And so we do a lot. And through that, it was really fantastic because we'd talk a lot about surfboards and making surfboards, and we'd bake him a surfboard, and uh, and we'd go surfing, and then he'd paint. We'd get canvases together, and he'd show me how to use the different paints and how to spread them, and and uh, from figurative, from his plate paintings, you know, to the abstract, and it was like being with Phil Edwards. I wanted to be with the best best artist and, and see what's going on. And so uh, for 25 years, I've got to work with Julian and, you know, in Mexico, in Hawaii. I mean, I took him out surfing a pipeline from New York straight to pipeline. Got him out there. He caught about three waves or so. But, hey, how many people get a wave at pipeline with a crowd? Yeah, you, did you block, you block the boys for him? Oh, of course. Oh, yeah. It, it was great. It was great. But, but the big thing was he went you know, I told him, hey, just go. I'm going to yell, and then I'm going to yell your name, and everybody's going to back off. And he just, I go, don't stop because you get one chance. Yeah. And he went, and he got it. And then we went down to Rocky Point, and he got a bunch of waves. And Hanalei, so we've traveled all over Mexico, and we've had a lot of fun for the last 25 years. And I've learned a lot from him, and he's learned a lot from me. Going back to your relationship with Phil Edwards, it seems like there's something about you that really has a sense of humility and curiosity where you want to be around people who can actually teach you more and you're open to it. I mean, that's not a personality trait that everybody has. Was, was Julian instrumental in opening doors into the fine art world for you? Like, it's just one thing to have a creative spirit and to be into photography and design. It's another thing to be able to go into those white rooms on Madison Avenue or in Chelsea and be respected as a fine artist. Um, Julian introduced me to lots of people, you know, just hanging out and, as I would assist him, he gave me a space in his studio, which he's never given anybody. But he gave me a space and he showed me how to uh, and what to paint and how to do it in, in different ways, 
which I don't think he really does with anybody except his kids. It's pretty generous. You know, and and I would share things. I took him to Jaws and photographed Jaws, and then we did a big, giant surf show at the MetLife building with paintings. My photos blown up 15 by 20 feet, eight of them, and he painted over them and had it put up on marble walls in the MetLife building that never anything had been put up before. And, you know, there was Christmas trees and people going up escalators. And and it just sort of, I think it really changed the atmosphere in um, Manhattan when you walk through that big building seeing those surf shots because there were like 60-foot waves and the guy wasn't even life-size. He was one-third the life-size. Wow. And I love seeing Julian on the North Shore, um, just him walking around in his purple pajamas and watching people's reaction because some people obviously know who he is. Probably a lot of people don't know who he is and they're like who's this guy in the purple pajamas? well they you know, all like, know who he is now with yeah. <laughs> hanging out with me and and uh, all the rest of the gang from fast eddie to uh you know all the different surfers there he got to know them all even kelly slater and andy i got pictures with him with the andy you know do you think the average surfer today the young surfer on the north shore you know in this like disposable instagram age do they do you think they have a reverence for the history and your accomplishments in the fine art world. Do you think that that's something that, that most of them know, or do they know you as the guy who built the pipe house with Jared Lopez? Well, they, they, uh, they think of me as a surfer and an artist and going back to Gogosian, I wasn't intimidated at all. I've been in, in shows, uh, lots of shows, you know, from surf shows to all kinds of shows. And it was just another show to me. You know, it's just like going surfing. And yes, I had it up on those white walls and I thought it was fantastic. And, you know, I hope people appreciate it walking through New York because uh, that had a lot of salt in those rectangles. I mean, you know, you can see, you know, when professional surfing started and these are all great surfers, surfboards broken at the pipeline. And maybe that doesn't mean anything in art, but it does mean something as an artifact also. But it's my art. And you can see where people started surfing and getting paid and being the wave warriors and everything. And John John getting the biggest contract ever and then having it canceled. It's pretty much done. I'm ready for a restart. Yeah, I don't know. What that's <laughs> I, I want to get like. going. Um, there's there's a great picture in my book of you getting a board from Gabe Medina. He like buckled it doing a straight air off the wall. And uh, you walked over and got it. And from my perspective, I couldn't tell at the time. I wasn't sure what your relationship with him was, whether he knew your history and who you were, or if he just thought you were some strange guy, like asking. No, for his he board knew my the, history. Okay. Um, uh, because when he was really young, I don't know, maybe 15, 16, a whole group of the Brazilians, and it was sunset. They're down at the uh, the beach park surfing and trying their little airs there, right, on the left. And I, I was shooting silhouettes of the kids playing on the beach in the sunset with Kaina Point in the background, running in the sand. Just fun stuff, right? Just, you know, part of the culture, kids playing. This one kid comes out of the water, you know, skinny little kid. And he goes, what are you doing? And he thought I was some weirdo, right? <laughs> what are you doing? And I go... Well, I'm shooting pictures of you guys doing little airs and uh, playing on the beach. And, you know, I plan on doing a book sometime of uh, just kids playing on the uh, 
on the beach and doing what they do. And I go, and you probably heard of my son, Christian Fletcher. And he says, oh, you're Christian Fletcher, dad. Oh my God, you're Herbie Fletcher. Oh my God, I can't even believe I'm talking to you. And he just went on and on and and, uh, and they loved it. So that was when he was young, and, and I don't really know him, but um, he was doing the little airs out there, yeah. and his buddy was, like, watching out after him. But he knows who I am. I know who he is. So I went down there. I wanted one of his boards in the rectangle, right? And he and I just filmed that whole aerial and landing and buckling, and, and he didn't want to give it to me. He goes, I can't give you this. It's broken. I'll give you a new board. I'll give you a new board. <laughs> okay, that's what, because I know there was there was some sort of a, not an altercation, but it was like it was a longer interaction than it normally would have been. So that's why I was curious as to what was going on. So he wanted to give you a new one. Yeah, I go, I don't want a new board. I want this broken board. You know, that's funny. You know, it's been written. I got pictures. He goes, no, I want to give you a new board for you. I go, no, I just want your broken board. That that means something. It has a lot of soul, baby. The new board, it don't have any. Yeah. To the uninitiated, it's actually a pretty common occurrence for people to come up and, and to ask pro surfers to, if they could keep as a souvenir of their broken board. But it's usually children that do it, not like a man in his, what are you, in your 50s now, Harb? How are you? I'm, I'm getting real <laughs> close to 72. Uh, I'm being generous, but wow, that's you look fantastic. Yeah. Well, thank you. I try hard, you know, f- have fun. I think that has a lot to do with it. I mean, it, 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 it shines through. So I guess, what are you most proud of? I mean, what do you what do you really want people to remember you by after after looking at this book and after looking at your art and after, you know, kind of seeing the seeds that you planted for the next generation that's going to come up with with your kids? Like, what do you want to be remembered as? Oh, I'd like to be remembered as um, a great father and a good friend and. And of course, my surfing and art and films. I do make lots of films. <laughs> it seems like you, I, I think you are. I think you're, you're. I think this book proves it. It's it's fantastic. If if you're listening um, and you haven't picked it up, it's called Fletcher: A Lifetime in Surf. It's published by Rizzoli. You can buy it online, and uh, you definitely should really you should check it out because it's it's just a really amazing. Document. And there's uh, there's articles in there with Mike D and Robert Trujillo from uh, Metallica and. Julian, Julian Bruce yeah. Weber, you know, a lot of people gave us some blessings. Well, kudos to you. I, I attempted to get Mike D to write a forward for my book and I couldn't pull it off. <laughs> but I got John C. Riley, so it ended up okay. In the yeah, that's that's great. That, that's great. Well, they're busy. They're so busy. I mean, Julian's so busy, he, you know, I don't know how he gets to take off. You know, it's really, he's always working, always doing something. But he loves art. That's his passion. He's a scientist, <laughs> you know, with color and, and everything he does. And Amazing. Uh, I really respect that. I really respect that. And I think that's why we get along so well. You know, we, we talk a lot about, you know, when we're together, but we can not talk for six months and then we're right back to where, you know. That's a great thing about, about true friendships. Like it's just even watching, um, you know, my son, we were out of town for six months, you know, due to the situation of COVID in New York and seeing him come back and just pick up right where he left off with his friends. It's like, it's a really beautiful thing. It really speaks to a true friendship. You know? Yeah, it does. You cannot see each other for a long time and you're right. You're there always. Well, we always like to give guests at the end of the show an opportunity. And then we talked about you and we plugged this amazing book that just came out. We plugged my book. Um, I want to give you an opportunity to, to plug something that's been inspiring you lately, whether it's you know, a book or a movie or maybe another artist that maybe isn't getting enough attention or shine. Is there something you want to, 
give some attention to that people should check out? You should check out Nathan's movie, Heavy Water. That is really soulful. It, it's, it, yeah. it talks about him and his friends and, and what he's been through. And you can check it out on Amazon, I believe. And fantastic. Did you see it in the Hamptons at all, or were you there? I you weren't did there. Not. I did. I did not. I did not. I have seen it, but not there. Yeah. They had it last year. Um, Gogosian had it out there, and they played it for a night and gave uh, free tickets out. It was. It was pretty neat. What's your opinion? Um, how, how do you feel about Montauk? You like it out there? Oh, I have a great time out there. I, I love going. I go out there every summer and hang out with Julian for a week or three weeks or whatever and we 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 get some surf we always get some surf it's small and fun and we got some secret spots that you can't get into that we go to and then i hang out with some younger guys um like trip out there and you know he takes me to the secret little sandbars and and he's got a good foot in the art world too trip he's having an art show right now and i got a painting in it and a, a few photos i like working with photos i love it i always have my camera with me or my surfboard <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, Herb, I really appreciate you taking the time out, and it's always a pleasure to see you. I'm not sure what's going to be in store this December for me, but hopefully uh, our paths will cross, if not on the North Shore, sometime soon. I'm going to keep making art, so I'm gonna, as soon as everything opens up, I'm going to shoot for I've been making a lot of art lately, just loving it. You know, and that's what's great out of Montauk. If you're not surfing, you're making art with Julian, you know, or working on a movie or some kind of script. or It's all about art. It's, it's really beautiful. We'll leave on those words. That's uh, a great way to end it. Thanks for your time, man. Um, all the best to the family, and thanks for sitting down. Really appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Congrats on the book. I have a good one there. All right, take care, Herb. This episode of The Plug was produced by Bucci with audio engineering and original music by Peter Buckingham. Thanks for listening, and a huge thanks to today's guests for dropping in. If you like this episode, hit subscribe and be sure to tune in for future conversations. 